Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to Investing Unscripted. I'm Jason Hall, joined by my good, dear friend, Jeff Santoro, the voice of the people. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how are you, friend? I'm good, man. Got in a good nappy poo before the... Uh, see, I've, I'm saying that twice because Jeff keeps telling me not to, not to, and he's going to edit it out. If so. anybody wants to stop listening now because Jason said nappy poo, I fully support that. If this, yeah, what, is, this, if this is what ends our podcast, I'm, I'm fine with it. It's a decision that I'll be happy with. I'm I'm actually okay with that with that too. I'm only saying it because it annoys Jeff. But no, I did. I got a little nap. I don't usually nap, Jeff. I'm not a napper. I'm not good at napping. I can't do it. But I got in a like a 20 minute nap today and I feel really good. Got some diet mountain dew now. I'm ready right. to do our mailbag. So if you listen on Spotify, there's a little poll question thing at the end uh, on the app. But let us know if you think Jason's energy level was was what you're used to or or lacking. We'll get a little listener feedback. All right. It is a mailbag episode. Before we dive into said mailbag, a couple quick reminders. We have new contact information now that we changed the name of the podcast. Uh, on Twitter, we are at InvestingPod, which I still can't believe was available for us. Our email is investingunscripted at gmail.com. You can also uh, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can get on our social media accounts. Anywhere that you have our information, you'll find a link to that. Or you can just do investingunscripted.com. We have that domain. You can check out our YouTube channel for video versions of these podcasts, but also short videos that Jason and I do, and Jason also does with last week's guest, Tyler Crow. And don't forget, please give us a rating, giving, give us a review. We got another Apple podcast review this week from someone. So thank you very much for that. That's really going to help people find the show. So if you're liking what you're hearing, do us a solid, hit that, hit that rating button, give us a review and help people find us. I want to make another pitch for our other socials too, because it feels like Twitter's kind of dying a little bit. Oh God, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to argue that too, but we're on threads. We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. LinkedIn. All of our, everywhere. with the exception of Twitter, everything else is investing unscripted. So it's really easy to remember and it's easy to find us. We'd love to get more engagement from, from our listeners in all of those other platforms. So please find us, please follow us, please share, tell your mom about us too. Yeah. I don't mean that in a weird way. Just like we want to help your mom make money. Yeah. I don't mean that in a weird way either. We want to help your mom be a better investor. All right. We're going to move on to the first mailbag question before this gets even weirder. So the first question we got was from a YouTube viewer named Jamie Call, I guess is how we say it. And here's the question. So I'll, I'll read it, Jason. You can give your, your thoughts first. I have an interesting question for you guys. There are some companies that I really like as an investment <clears throat> that I can't really say have a decided moat. Or maybe they do, and I just don't see it. Some companies that come to mind are Lululemon, Celsius Holdings, and Starbucks. Maybe their moat is in their brand or quality of their brand, network effect, and footprint, but it's not a moat as easy to point to like ASML, for example. So maybe let's talk about what these companies are and do real quick before we dive into answering the question. Lululemon, athletic fashion brand. Celsius Holdings Athle is- Athleisure. Athleisure, yes. Yeah. Celsius Holdings is a energy drink company. I think everyone knows what Starbucks is. And ASML- They sell mermaids, right? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah. And ASML is a, they make the machines you need to do ultra ultraviolet lithography to make semiconductors. So just a real quick rundown on what those are. So Jason, what are your thoughts on this? Basically, how do you think about companies that you really like, but you're not sure if they have a moat? Yeah, this is really good. And this is like a great- toolbox question because I think valuation and understanding moats 
are probably the two things that investors do the least amount of work on and are probably the most two most important things that are going to determine your long-term return. So we'll focus on um, competitive advantage and moat here. Competitive advantage, moat, same thing. You've heard Warren Buffett use the term durable competitive advantage. I think that's extremely important. So the way I think about this <clears throat> is it's some tangible or intangible thing about the business that <clears throat> can stand the test of time, that can pass the any idiot management test and, and hold up. And the durability is the first part of it. So think, here are things that are not. I'm going to invert this. I'm going to Charlie Munger this and invert this a little bit. Here are things that are not durable competitive advantages that are not moats. Balance sheets, um, management teams. Those are, those are things that can be advantageous for a period of time, but they're no promise, right? Yeah. An idiot can blow up a balance sheet pretty fast. A company that seems like it has a pretty good balance sheet could roll into a massive change in the interest rate environment. All of a sudden that balance sheet becomes a liability. Look at every heavy, heavily leveraged company that's going to have to refinance debt that's built their business on the back of cheap debt over the past 10 years, as an example, right? That's not durable. I, I, I think all of I think those things can be competitive advantages, but not yeah. durable competitive advantages. Yes. I think that's the distinction. Right, exactly. And that's the thing that when you say a moat, to me it has to be a durable competitive advantage. For I'll use Coca-Cola just because it's an easy one. And it's definitely the brand, right? You think about and this is one that a lot of people don't really understand about a lot of powerful brands. I think Lululemon, it's the same way. The the Brand power. Apple is another one. And, and, there, and here's the thing about it. There's a ton of work that happens over a long period of time to build that brand, to make it into that moat, right? And there are little basic things you have to do to continue to support it. So like Coca-Cola, for example, the brand became powerful because of the, a, a good product that people enjoyed that they became loyal to over time, right? You can take that Coke and you can put it next to the store brand next to a Pepsi and do the blind taste test. And you could basically flip a coin to what their preference is actually going to be. But you could put Pepsi in a Coke cup and Coke in a Pepsi cup. And their preference is going to be the brand they prefer that's on the packaging, not what's inside the thing, right? It's, right, it's right. this powerful, powerful thing that we develop and where it becomes an advantage for a company like Coca-Cola, Starbucks benefits from this too, Lululemon benefits from this too, is you get pricing power because Coke sells more than the costs more than the store brand. You can, and it's the sort of thing that even during poor economic times, people are still going to buy Coke, right? They're le they're less likely to go cheap and buy the store brand on something like that. So that's yeah, things, where things that are on the lower end of the dollar spectrum, I, I think, tend to be more. People tend to tilt towards the brand more. Yes, you know, yeah. like if it's a dollar fifty or a dollar thirty. For the Coke, you're gonna, and the Coke's a dollar fifty. You're gonna buy the Coke, which right. is different than like this car costs twenty five thousand dollars or this car costs thirty five thousand dollars. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's the reason why Coca Cola is not cyclical and F one fifty sales are cyclical, right. right? That guy's still gonna buy an F one fifty, but he's gonna wait another year or two before he buys it during a recession, right? During a weak economic period. So that's that's a really key point. Now the other thing that I think is really important for a company like Starbucks and Celsius too. They're, they the brand power is a big part of their thing, and they're starting to get some scale advantages, which can drive something that Starbucks has in spades, and that's cost advantages. So pricing power, Jeff, um, that's something that you have when you have a strong brand. You get the pricing power mode that comes along with it. You can raise prices, you can hold your prices pretty well. Starbucks has proven like there have been periods where like traffic growth in their stores has been stagnant. They're not getting more people in. But they're just charging more and people are still showing up every day to get their Starbucks. So that pricing power is really important on the like the brand facing side. But on the other end of it, the scale side is cost advantages. When you're the largest coffee buyer on the planet, not only can you sell your Starbucks for a premium price, what you're paying for your coffee can be really advantageous, right? Yeah. And to use Celsius as an example, I think I think this maybe is a variation on a theme of that, which is they just signed a distribution deal with Pepsi. Yeah. So rather than working, so they're building a, cost advantages. Right. That's giving yes. them a cost advantage or building towards one that they didn't have before when they were just operating through a, a network of fragmented <laughs> distribution operators or distribution companies. 
So yeah, I agree with that too. I think ASML has a moat for a completely different reason. And that's yeah. what the, the listener here pointed out that he called that a easy to point to moat in the sense right. that they are the only company in the world that makes a specific machine that you need to make the bleeding edge chips. So for as long as that right. remains the case, that's a massive competitive advantage for them. And this is different than someone starting another coffee chain or someone making another energy drink or someone making more different athleisure clothing. Like it, it's an enormous undertaking to build these lithography machines. So you could call it a little and bit. And they have the intellectual property, right? They right, have correct. patents in place. Yeah. It's, it's not unassailable. I mean, there are no. other companies doing not the same thing, but trying to get to the same result through a different method. So I don't yeah. know how, if it'll be a rock solid moat forever, but it, I, I believe it is one for them now. So I think this is, I have two thoughts on this question. One is I think about this a lot because you can trick yourself into thinking a moat is more real than it actually is. I'll give a quick oh, yeah. example. Yeah. We, we recorded a, an episode of the In Investing for Beginners podcast about a month ago, and it just got released this week. So we're recording this on December 12th. It got released yesterday. So when you guys listen to this sometime after this Saturday, it'll be about a week old. And one of the stories I relayed was they asked us about mistakes we made earlier in our investing careers. And not that mine's that long ago, but I made some moat mistakes with things I invested in because I conflated or I confused moat with all my friends are using it, like like confirmation bias instead of- Anecdata. Yeah, anecdata. Like yeah. the example I used was Peloton. Or no, I, I didn't even use Peloton. That's a good example though. The one I actually used was Stitch Fix, something I owned very early in my investing life. And it was simply because a lot of people I knew used it. And I and I confused that with moat, right. <laughs> which is not the right. same thing at all. So familiarity and anecdata is not a moat. It can be a entryway into a good idea, but it, it is not a moat. Well, you said I, something before you bring on the other thing I want to I want to stay on this one for a yeah. second, Jeff, is is confirmation bias, right? Because you were looking for things to confirm what you wanted yes, to believe. For sure. Not trying to disprove the thesis. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned Peloton too, and I think that's another good example. Still to this day, tons of my friends and my wife's friends regularly ride their Peloton. And I, for a long time, mis mistook that as a moat as well. And I think to some degree it is. I think they have a little bit of brand power, but I don't know. You can get a different brand bike and use the app on your phone. So it's like, yeah. it's not, yeah, I guess you're still using their app, but not exactly the same thing. So the only thing I, the other thing I wanted to mention was there's actually a decent book that covers a lot of this that yeah. if, if this listener doesn't know about, I would recommend. It's called The Little Book That Builds Wealth by Pat Dorsey. And he basically lays out the four types of uh, business advantages you can have, intangible assets, switching costs, network effects, and cost advantages, which is yeah. we've been t touching on some of these as we've had this conversation. So our listener here who sent the question or anyone else, that, that would be a good resource just to read more about it. Jeff, I want to, before we move on, just because I think this is a, such a fun topic and it's such an important tool set for investors to build, learn how to use and to keep, to keep sharp. What is a company that it took you a while to realize the strength of, of their competitive advantages, specifically like if you have one for, we've talked about intangible assets with brand power, right? We've talked about that a ton, but like switching costs and network effect, I would love to hear you talk about maybe a stock. I've got a couple in mind for both of these, but I, if you want me to go first, I can go first. But I just think that it's so important to understand how powerful these can be. I want to think about it. So you go first okay. and I'll have one by the time you're done. And I'm springing this on Jeff live here as we're <laughs> making this, by the way. So no, but this is a me. good thought. I, I'm glad you asked yeah. me live because I, yeah. I want to force myself to think about it, but will you go first? Buy me some time. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with network effect first, because it's a lot of times the companies that have network effect are companies that Nobody likes, everybody uses, and they don't have a choice, right? And it's not that they don't have a choice. And you'd think that this would be switching costs. And it is switching costs to a certain extent, but it's also its network effect that has this. You think about Visa and MasterCard. I'm going to bundle these two together. It's like the duopoly. Even though there's tons of others, there's Discover and there's uh, American Express with all the, the PayPals and other things that have popped up for uh, like Venmo and Cash App that are kind of part of that ecosystem now. But really, it's still Visa and MasterCard's world. Everybody else is just living in it. And their network effects are so incredibly powerful because everybody uses it to buy stuff. And if everybody uses it to buy stuff, if you're a merchant, guess what? 
got to take it. If you're a bank, you got to offer it. So the network effect is so incredibly, incredibly powerful. But if I'm a bodega or if I've got a little convenience store or a gas station, I hate these guys because half my operating margin goes to pay the fees. I absolutely hate them. But the network effect is so incredibly powerful. Yeah. So I have two two network effect ones and they kind of go together and it's Airbnb and Etsy. And the reason I kind of put them together is they're both two-sided marketplaces, right? They both have buyers and sellers that they need to attract. And right. it's, it's a true platform where Etsy and Airbnb, they're not competing against with either one of their partners. They have a part, they have a platform and they connect buyers and sellers. Right. And the more of one that come to the platform, the more it drives the others. Yeah. So if yeah. you're if you're looking, there's like I'll give an example for Airbnb. Like there's another, there's other places you can go to find places to stay. Even VRBO or Verbo, whatever they go by, does the exact same thing. It's not like you're competing with hotels, but it's if more if you go to one and the other, and there's more people on, if there's more people on Airbnb in the area you want to go to, you're like, oh, I'm going to go there, and then more people go there, and then more more hosts decide to put their their homes on there. So it's like this self fulfilling prophecy. Some people call it the flywheel effect of just building on itself. And I think Etsy is the same thing. If you're looking for handmade, bespoke gifts to give to people, that's the place to go. And if you're the kind of person that makes those gifts and you know that's where the buyers are, then that's the place to go. And it just builds on itself. <clears throat> I had a hard time thinking about switching costs, but I, I don't have necessarily a specific company. Well, I do, but I'll use it as an example because I don't know enough about the industry to say that this is a rock solid moat. I think when software platforms that companies use become very entrenched across a lot of different workers, yeah. that actually can be a pretty high switching cost. So like a company I use in my, I own in my portfolio that's done really well as an investment for me is ServiceNow, which I don't think is a super well-known company, but they do essentially software to help businesses be more productive. And I'm just using them as an example. But if, you're, if you have a 6,000 employee company, and they're all using ServiceNow, let's just use it as an example, for everything, for HR, for the IT department, for onboarding new employees, for payroll, for all the different things companies like that can do. Can you switch? Absolutely. But you think about like, oh man, all these people have to be retrained on this new system and the people in this department are super cranky and I don't feel like dealing with them. And every time we do anything new, they complain. There's this, and then you're like, all right, it's worth the, it's worth the extra 10% I'm paying just to keep with who I have. Yeah. So I think any kind of software company that, and I think this is where people get tripped up because it's easy to look at the new shiny software company and say, oh, switching costs. But I don't know that it's that easy, right? It's got to be something that's like entrenched and deep into a company and not something where like, oh, only 12 people at the company actually use this. So it's easy to switch out. So that's one example I could think of off the top of my head. I've got, I've got a switching cost one. And this is just... this. There is no business on the planet that has more powerful switching costs than banks. Think about Bank of America. Bank of America. This is through. Okay. I, yeah. All right. This I'm is through argue June. With you a little bit, but I see where you're coming from. So this is through. This is through June. I don't. I don't have their latest quarter pulled up in front of me. But as of the 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 end of their June quarter, they had one point just under one point nine trillion dollars in total deposits. Now wait for it. Seven hundred and fifty-one billion of that, Jeff is non-interest bearing. There's $751 billion sitting at Bank of America right now, not earning any interest when you can get 5% in an online savings account. So I'm going to push back at you with that one because I actually did think about that. Here's what I would say. I think it's a competitive advantage. I don't know that it's a durable competitive advantage because in a world where... In a world. In a world nice. where interest rates stay high, and I mean, I'm going to use high as in like what they are now, if not a little bit higher. Let's just say we have 5%. You can get 5% on a high-yield savings account for the next five years. I don't think that number's what it is now in five years. I think if enough time goes by and more, more people are saying to their friends, hey, I moved all my money into this high-yield savings account. I'm getting 5%, blah, blah, blah. I think over time that will erode. And one, or, one of two things is going to happen. People are going to leave Bank of America or Bank of America is going to start paying more interest. And maybe they don't need to pay 5%. Maybe they can pay 2.5% and that's enough for the lazy people not to switch their money. I think um, that's the key. I think that's the key. And again, it's, and they're there's smart. a difference like, they're between- They're going to do that. Like I, 
They're, right. I'm sure well, there's they're a difference this. between and they're looking for attrition and they're thinking, okay, what's yep. the point at which we sweeten the deal to keep people? But they're just not right. there yet. I mean, interest rates have been high for what a year. Yeah, right. you know? that, I mean, that's, that's not a long thing. time. Well, and it's 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 again, there's a difference between a durable competitive advantage and an impenetrable competitive advantage. Eventually, Bank of America is going to have to raise rates, but the durability is going to be that they will always be able to. I firmly believe this because the same way at J.P. Morgan, same way at Wells Fargo. They're going to be able to, same way U.S. Bank, they're going to be able to be below the market, right? I really think they're going to be able to stay below the yeah, market. Yeah, I would agree. Oh. I also think, too, the amount of money you have in the bank is part of the reason you decide to stay or go. So if I was, the, if I had maybe like a, just a couple thousand in my checking account because that's my, how I pay my bills and I had very little savings, there's less incentive. Like 5% on a small amount of money might not be enough to, but if I have... $200,000 in cash in my savings account, maybe I'm thinking about it differently. That's, that's a lot of money, you know? So yeah, I would agree with you. It's probably somewhere in between. It's not an impenetrable moat. It's probably not just simply an advantage. I don't know. I did think about banks, but I, I, I do feel like over time, maybe not as much. But anyway, we can, we can move on. I think that was a good, a good wrap up for that question. All right. Second question we got here was from Colin, loyal listener and our friend from the, from the North. He asked us, at what point do you say screw it or just recommend people say, other people say screw it and just index and buy diversified ETFs? After four years of individual stock picking, I pulled the plug on most of my stock picking. I was behind the market or matching the market most of the time. Now the vast majority of my money is on SCHD and COWZ, which I believe are Canadian-based ETFs. He said 95% of his money is there. Um, 90% of his equivalent of the 401k in Canada was all in individual, individual stocks. So he decided after four years, if he can't beat the index, join it. So what are your thoughts about Colin's question here? So Colin and I actually messaged back and forth a little bit when he sent this question. And Jeff, you and I've actually talked a little bit about this. And this one might turn into a full episode at some point because- He told me he was following your stock picks and that's why he decided well, to yeah, that's... just start indexing. Yeah, there you go. That's probably true. But no, it's, it's, it, this is such an important consideration to have because it really is hard to consistently outperform the market. It really is very, very difficult to do because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of stocks. Most of them suck. And if you look over the past decade, it's been a handful of winners that have resulted in the vast majority of the market's outperformance versus its historical long-term averages, right? And there's a good chance that a lot of the people out there that are buying individual stocks, maybe they have a value bent or they don't want to buy the biggest companies. And guess what? If you've been focused on value or avoiding the biggest companies, you've underperformed the market most likely, right? It, it's, you've, you've raised the, the degree of difficulty when you think about the Magnificent Seven and, and all of you know, that cohort of stocks that's done so incredibly well. So with that said, Here's how I think about it. Number one, and, and again, back in the toolbox here, but if you're buying individual stocks, you need to be doing it for a reason, right? You need to be doing it because there's something you're trying to accomplish. Either you're trying to beat an index and you think you can beat an index, whether you're a member of a stock picking newsletter and you're using that to jump off your research to try to find the outperformers and then you're Maybe you're following it exactly or you're using that for research and then you're picking your own and you're looking for alpha, right? Like we talked about with Tyler on, on, on the episode with him. Or maybe you've reached a point in your investing career where you're focused on income and you really want to own income stocks that are generating dividends and you want to use the dividends for income. You don't want to have to be picking stocks to sell, to generate income, and you just want to just cash out those checks from the dividend payments and that's going to be your cash flow, or you want to have, you still want equities because you want to outperform bonds, but you want less volatility. So you're focused on low beta stocks. So the lows are, are when there are periods of the market going down, the market's down 25%, maybe your portfolio is only down 15%. So there, there can be a lot of different things you're trying to solve for that you're trying to do. And not all of those things equal outperforming the S&P 500. So Number one, I think you need to have a goal, have it really clearly define what you're trying to do. And if you're not able to accomplish that goal over some extended period of time, I appreciate that Colin's talking about that here. He's talking about a four-year period of time. Then you have to kind of reassess and make some decisions 
Is this the best use of your time? And this is the last one for me, Jeff, that I think is really important. If you're not doing as well, but you're close enough, but you're having a hell of a lot of fun and it's scratching an intellectual itch or whatever purpose it's fulfilling, and it gives you some fulfillment, maybe you do still keep doing it, right? But if it makes you miserable, index up. The longer I buy individual stocks, the more humility I have. And then the yeah. more I tell other people, you probably should just buy an index. Because so like, let's use you and me as an example, right? You, again, just to quickly call back to the investing for beginners pod that we just recorded a few weeks ago, you said something to them, where you said, you have a cheat code, in the sense that you get to spend 40 hours a week thinking about buying individual stocks. It's your job. I barely have that cheat code. I devote pretty much all my free time to investing because I'm interested in it. I like it. I get up early before work and I do stuff with it. I come Jeff, home your from sons work. texted me. They miss you. I'm sorry, sons? Your, your sons texted me. They miss I, don't, don't So there's these two little boys that live in your house? Oh, those kids. Yeah, they're yours. <laughs> but I mean, I so even with that, even with me using all my free time for that, I barely think I have enough time to keep up with being an active stock picker. And I've even thought like, screw it. I should just index. <laughs> so I get it. I get where Colin's coming from. I guess the other the other thing I would say is this might be the right move for Colin right now, and it might be the right move for Colin forever, but it also doesn't have to be forever too. So one of the things I, I talk about a lot, but I probably don't give enough thought to is I spend all of my time worrying about 10% of my portfolio because the rest of it is in index funds. But it's only because I had a 20-year-ish head start on building up the index funds before I even got into stock investing. So one thing I have said to other people who are interested in investing is I think it's perfectly appropriate to start with index funds and maybe even build an index fund base to your portfolio. And then slowly with, with smaller amounts of money, try buying some individual stocks. See if you like it. See if it's interesting to you. See if you have the time to devote to it. Colin clearly is, has the interest, right? He, he listens. He interacts with us. I think he's, he has a, a mind for it. You know, We're all busy. We all have lives and families and stuff like that. So maybe 10, 15 years down the road, if he's got a nice big chunk of change sitting in index funds in his account, maybe he takes some percentage of, of his future contributions and gets back into the game. Maybe he has more time when his kids are older or whatever the situation is. So right. I, I get it. I, I don't, I, I think it's, I think, well, who was it? Botfitter Munger said, you know, most people should index. <laughs> like, and I don't know that it's an insult. It's just like, who has the time? It, I think the mistake is thinking with no, in, with no research or time spent, just with natural gifts that you can beat the market. I I, right. I think a lot of people think that about themselves, and I they, think they that's do. where it's... you get into trouble because because they'll beat it over a short amount of time, and think well, oh, the market I... will lie to you. Yeah. Oh, in the short in a short period of time, right? It really it really will. And it's it's the I think it's the intellectual equivalent, Jeff, of thinking you can just show up on on a basketball court and beat like even the worst NBA player. Like let me let me put it a different way: even the worst scholarship player on the worst college basketball team, right? I mean, let's be honest. Most most people would lose a pickup game to like a good high school kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like Yeah. No, it's true. It's it's Yeah. And but it's easy to overestimate our own ability. And I think men are a little more susceptible to that. The, the psychological data kind of backs that up. We always overestimate our capabilities. And the problem is that with stocks, it's so easy to do it that we don't realize how hard it is to do it well. You know, yeah. I mean, look, I was guilty of this. I, I thought I was much better than I was in 2021 because everything I did went up. You and everybody else, buddy. Yeah. You and All everybody right. else. So we got one more question here, and it's from a listener named Jeff Santoro. And he wrote in and asked, the end of the year is coming, and I keep hearing people talk about tax loss harvesting. What is this, and should I be considering it? So obviously, I wrote this question, Jason. I don't, I don't know if you picked up on that. I actually think it'd be a good thing to talk about at this time of year. I have obviously do know what it is, but let's talk a few minutes about not only what tax loss harvesting is, but I'm curious how you think of it. What do, do you do it? If so, how? If so, when? And then I'll share my thoughts on it too. So first I have a, a question, a follow-up question to that question. So you're saying we don't have a listener named Jeff Santoro. I've never once listened to this godforsaken podcast. 
Okay. All right. Okay. All right. I listen to it three times every week before anybody else does. So, so tax loss harvesting, this is definitely, it's, it's definitely timely. So, you know, this is going to come out and there's still going to be a couple weeks left in the trading, trading year. And the short version version is the idea is if you have one of two things, either typically realized investing gains, especially short-term investing gains, because those are taxed at your marginal tax rate. They're basically the last dollars you earn. So they're taxed at the highest rate, the short-term gains. You want to be able to try to offset those with some, with, with losses, realized losses. So a lot of time, a lot of people, a lot of investors this time of year, again, this is all inside taxable accounts. So this is nothing in your retirement accounts because all that's tax shielded. Looking for stocks that are down that you can sell before the end of the year, realize that loss to offset some gain that you've made somewhere else. And there's limits to how much you can offset. I'm not going to quote all those. I want people to go out there and actually do a little bit of research on their own to find it out. You can go on Investopedia, Motley Fool, Seeking Out. All, they all have articles talking about this kind of thing. Here's another cool thing about it, Jeff, is you can actually offset a small amount of your regular income as well, which is kind of nice. Yeah. So even if you haven't sold any stocks and, and gains, but you're holding some losses and you've been thinking about selling them, you can offset a few thousand dollars of actual taxable income too, right? Right. Yeah. So just to put it in layman's terms, if you sold stock X and it made you $100 in profit and you sold stock Y at $100 worth of a loss, it you, it should equal out, right? There should be no impact on, there's essentially no capital gains. It offsets reported. the taxable gain, right. so you won't pay taxes on that gain. A couple things I want to make clear, at least how I think of this. So don't think tax loss harvesting should be a time to go sell companies that are losing that just for the sake of tax loss harvesting, at least not, that's how, what, that's my opinion, right? This is not investing advice. So I'm going to build I, on that. I have some thoughts too. Keep so going. So if I have a stock that I still really believe in, like this was a big thing last year, not so much now because we've had such a good market year, but I remember thinking at the end of 2022, when basically everything in my portfolio was in the red, kind of challenging myself and thinking, okay, I'm thinking of selling this stock. Am I really selling it because I truly no longer believe in this company. The thesis has changed. I don't want to own it, whatever. And it's convenient time to take the tax loss. Or am I looking for a reason to sell it because it's down? Right. <laughs> right. right. So I think yeah. that's the sort of mental check you sort of have to have to make. You know, I, I, I would hate to sell something just because it happens to be down in December because I'm trying to defer some taxes or whatever. And then all of a sudden, two years later, it's up, it doubles and I've I've sold it. So... And also, I, just one more thing, and then I want to hear what you have to say too. You don't have to sell all of a stock to realize some tax loss harvesting. So right, right. another example would be, let's say you bought, I don't know, I'll say Starbucks because we already talked about it in this episode. Let's say you bought Starbucks in 2003, and that purchase is up <clears throat> a lot, and you bought Starbucks in 2021 again, and that purchase is down a lot. You can sell just the one from 2021 and keep all your shares that are earlier, right? They should be in your brokerage in the in the tax lots that you bought them in. So that's just another thing to consider. You can you can you can choose which purchases of a stock if you've bought it multiple times that you sell. That's another way to sort of go about it. Yeah, you need to check with your different brokers. Treat that differently. So you need to make sure, like before you hit the sell button, how, what your broker is going to default to. Are they going to sell your newest tax lots first or your oldest? Make sure you understand all that. So I want to push back a little bit on the selling stocks you like as part of a tax strategy, because there are ways you can go about it. You just have to be mindful of the repercussions. But before I get to that, there's a really important aspect of tax loss harvesting that's important to understand. And that's you have short-term and long-term gains. And then on the losses, they're looked at in that same short-term and long-term too. And basically the definition is anything that you've owned a year or more is a long-term Anything you've owned a year or less or less than a year is short term. And typically you're only you can only offset long-term gains with long-term losses, short-term gains with short-term losses, up to a certain amount. Again, it's it's it becomes a bit of a gray area. Yeah. So again, don't just look at, you know, a stock that you bought three months ago that's doubled and you've made a thousand dollars and a stock that you've owned for a year that's down a thousand dollars and think you can just offset them. Make yeah, sure talk to a tax professional. There's plenty yeah. of stuff on the internet you can read up about it to make Not sure. Not tax advice. 
Yeah, this is not tax advice. This is this is this is directionally useful information to yes. point you towards finding a good correct answer for yourself. So again, make sure you understand like short term and long term and like the implications for offsetting gains if you do want to do some harvesting. But I will say that even for this is the tiny little bit of pushback because directionally I agree with you, but I do think that is it is can still be a strategy you can use where you can sell a stock that's down to off that you've lost some money on that you want to continue to own, but there's some rules about, and you can think maybe you just want to buy it back. There's some yeah. rules around that, right? Yeah. So yeah. there's the wash rule. So yeah. you can't buy it back for at least 30 days. So you can't like buy it in another account and then sell it tomorrow. Like that's all that 30 days before 30 days after there's the, the IRS, they've got some smart people, Jeff, like they know, yeah. know all the loopholes around right. this kind of stuff. You can't buy it in your Roth. And then sell it in your taxable account. That cancels it, washes it out. That's right. why it's called the wash rule, right? But you so, could, I mean, but after 30 days, I mean, again, not tax advice, but my understanding is if you sell it on December 30th and then you buy it back on, let's just say February 1st, right? Just to really get past 30 days. Right. Yeah, you can. You're fine. And, and you the, absolutely and, can. And, and that is a legitimate, yeah. that is a legitimate strategy. The implications and the repercussions is that you may sell it on December 30th for $100 and you may have to buy it back for 120 or 100 right. whatever whatever the market bears. You yeah. have to- Or it could be 80. <laughs> or it could be 80, right? And you could feel really brilliant yeah. that, that you tax, you harvested the tax loss and you got a better cost basis. So I've used this strategy before and here's what I do. This is one of the rare times that, I, Jeff, I actually hold myself to a rule. I specifically record the dollars- that I realized when I made that sell. So I sell that stock at a loss and I realize $1,000. That's what I get. 31 days later or whenever I'm going to do it, I will invest $1,000 in that stock, no matter where the price. Now, obviously, if the stock price is doubled and it's like way out of my normal valuation range or something weird has happened, I'll revisit. But within some range of standard deviation, like I fully commit to rebuying at whatever the market price is. So I don't try to outsmart myself, right? That's the caveat. And that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. I've traditionally not been, I've tried not to be too cute about it in the past. Yeah. Now, again, this is not, I'm not talking huge sums of money here. The only, the only thing right. I've done is tiny amounts of money around the tiny stocks I own. I've never sold a huge position for something like this. I honestly don't even, I don't even go back and look to see, oh, how many, how many gains have I, or how much have I realized in gains from things I've sold or how much do I want to offset my income? I don't even go down that road. I really do just think if this is something I'm on the fence about, if this is something I've been thinking about, it's the end of the year, it might, it might be a tiebreaker kind of thing in my brain. Um, and I've not yet done what you just said, which is sell it, keep track of what I did, revisit after 31 days just to, to see. So that's another way to, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's another way to actually do it strategically and, and not necessarily bail on a stock that you do want to hold for the long term. Well, and you hit on the key reason why it's, it's, it's a strategy that, I've, that I do use and I've been using for maybe four or five years now. And we've talked about it before, Jeff, 90% of your invested wealth is in retirement accounts. You've only recently begun buying individual stocks with exposure to taxable brokerages. I've been investing in some taxable accounts for a, a, a lot longer. So it's just, it's larger sums of money and it's meaningful enough that right. it's a strategy that can make a material difference and be useful for me. Yeah, for sure. We're going to do a, a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to have a little conversation about the way the market has felt. We have a market vibes check-in coming at you after this short break. Hey, Jeff. Yes, sir. How's your vibes, bro? I don't know if market vibes is like the right thing to call this, but- it really is just what I wanted to talk about. So let's let's give it some numbers. Jason, what what has the market done? And we'll use the S&P 500 as a proxy for the market. What has it done since its October 2023 low point? So this is for the S&P 500. I think it was October 27th was the 2023 lowest point. Low low point, right? The decline from the from the kind of the bear market the bear market rally we saw. And then the market declined a pretty good bit. And the S&P 500 is up 12.8, just basically 12.8%. Now that doesn't, doesn't include dividends. That's just a level change just to keep it yep. easy. But basically 13%. Okay, here's my next question. And what is it up for the whole year, year to date as of December 12th? S&P 500 is up 21%, Jeff. This is, this is my question. And I don't know if you have this data in front of you, but this is what I was thinking. 
I've had these market vibes feelings at certain points in the year, right? So the whole first half of the year was surprisingly good. I think we we both talked about that, especially as we did the portfolio updates. We were kind of surprised to see how how quickly out of the shoot the market went up in January and then kind of did well for most of the year. And then I remember feeling in October, I think we even might might have done a market vibes B block on a, on an episode sometime in the fall about how it felt totally different. Yeah. But really since then it's felt very frothy again. You know, the fear and greed needle has has in my mind pointed squarely towards greed just in the last couple months here. So that's why I wanted to put some numbers on it. So it's really turned it's really turned around since that October low. So the thing I'm wondering though is the talk for the first like half of the year was yes, the market's up in the teens, but it's completely been driven by the magnificent seven right? Those big tech companies that are the majority of the S&P 500. I'm curious, do you know this? And if not, maybe we can take a second to find it. Has that also been the case since that October low? Like has the the, the Magnificent Seven companies driven this more recent run? Or has that been a little bit more widespread? So Alphabet, um, one of the Magnificent Seven, is up 8.4%. Okay, so they're lagging the market since that lagging point. the market and and notice and it's a very short period of time right? right but lagging the market by a pretty substantial amount it is the only one of the only one of this magnificent seven that's lagging the market by a, a significant amount microsoft's up 13 and a half percent and then going up to nvidia's up 17 percent. then you have 15 percent or better for basically all of the rest of them they're all they're all doing really really well i'm trying to think what's a good proxy for the rest of the market probably or, the it, russell 2000 so how's that done since the October low. Do you want to do you want to guess? All right, just based on the way the rest of my portfolio is performing. I'm going to say that the Russell 2000 has done close to what the overall market has done and if not definitely better than it did from like January 1st through that low point. Yeah, it's up 15%. Wow. It's up 15%. What All right, real quick. What was it up from January 1st through October 27th? I'll tell you January 1st through, okay, I can give that to you. Give me a second. I can tell you this. It's only up 7% year to date. So, okay. so it's really been a more recent thing. Well, because that's, that's yeah, sort of- it was down, where, down, That's uh, why I was October wondering. October 27th, it was down 7%. Here's why I was thinking this whole- This, this is, is a full this, market rally, I think is the point, right? And it just using my small stock portfolio as a proxy, this is what I was wondering because I remember- being feeling very disconnected between what my portfolio was doing and what the market was doing for most of this year. Because I'm like, I can't believe the market's up this much. Like my portfolio is not. <laughs> it's still <laughs> suffering like it, like it was in 2022. Over the last month or two, I've felt completely different about it. Stocks that were middling, stocks that were really kind of stuck at the bottom are starting to, to rise up and the market's still doing well. So I was just curious. Like, So it really does feel like the rest of the, the S&P 93 is catching up, I guess, is another way to think of it. Yeah. So the Russell, all right, the Russell, the Russell 3000 is what I meant. The Russell 2000 is the small cap index. The Russell 3000 is the small and mid cap. Okay. What's that I, done? Yeah. Same. Interesting. Round, rounding, round, round figures, it's done basically, basically the same. But again, the point is, is that we're actually seeing a full market, even as, even as the Magnificent Seven continued to to do really well, the rest of the market's coming up. Here's what's 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 changed. I, I mean, I know what it is. I I don't know. I so I don't know what it is other than I'm happy about it. I'm I'm. What do you think it is? It's I mean it's sentiment. Obviously, it's I mean that sounds like a lazy answer. But if here's 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 what it is. In the economic numbers have generally been, but also the economic numbers have been softer. Right, inflation is softened a little bit. Consumer spending is softened a little bit, but the jobs numbers have continued to be incredibly good. So you put those things together, and it's like the best case scenario of what the Fed has been trying to do, which is tamp down demand yeah. but not tank the economy. And that, I mean, that bodes well because it tells investors that the economy is going to continue to remain strong because people are going to continue to working. GDP is going to move up. Companies are going to be profitable. Rising interest rates aren't going to kill business. Yeah, I would agree. I, but here's, and maybe this is still sentiment, but I, I also think it's that it feels like, again, this is sort of anecdotal slash me watching my own portfolio, but it feels like most companies did 
better in their Q4, 1, and 2. Well, I guess Q1, 2, and 3, like reports that happened in, during this year. I guess Q4, 1, 2, and 3, right? We got we get all those in 2023. It just feels like there, if there was any bad stuff that was going to flow through that came from interest rates being higher and all that kind of stuff, maybe hasn't hit yet. Yeah. So I think, and that's tied to sentiment, I think, to some degree. But I, I right. think the business performance has been maybe better than people thought. And that's where I think the sentiment is coming in. Yeah. Um, and I also, I am curious if, if, if this is just a, a delay of some pain for some companies and we're still going to see it in 2024, maybe that's a different conversation, but do you think, so I guess this is why I wanted to bring it up, Rick. I wanted to bring it back to the toolbox and, and what people can take away from it. Do you invest differently based on the market vibes? I mean, sort of, because I'm pretty valuation focused and I have been for a long time, yeah. right? And depending on the vibes, the stocks that I'm interested in may be more or less overvalued, and that's going to affect where I'm going to deploy my capital. And the other part of it too, and I want to say this too, I think part of like the vibes aspect and, and the forward looking and the sentiment part is I think the market so broadly has this, and I believe it's misguided expectation that interest rates are going to start getting lowered. There's just no evidence to support that happening, barring a recession, right? right you don't that's get, the thing. Yeah. you don't get both. You don't right. get both. Yeah, the, they'll the, go lower the, when we hit another huge crash. Yeah. Think about here. Here's how the Fed works, and think about the Fed's toolbox. The Fed's toolbox is is largely making interest rates go up or down to get the economy to dance how it wants it to. Right. right they're right. they're holding the what do they call those the marionette strings. Who's where's Waldo? They're holding the Waldos, right? That's what Waldos. They're, they're called Waldos. Yeah, they're they're okay. Yeah, they're called Waldos. Yeah, so they're 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 the ones holding, and it's interest rates, right? Up and down and up and down, and it's it's it would be mind-numbingly stupid if I'm the Fed to lower interest rates in a perfectly healthy economic environment because I'm taking tools out of my toolbox and leaving them back in the workshop, and then I'm driving to the job site, right? Yeah, because if you're the Fed, you want to save that ability to lower every 50 base, 25 basis points you have is an opportunity to affect the economy in in a way that you want to affect it, right? Yeah. No, I agree. And I think I I'm the same as you. Like I I would say I do change how I invest based on vibes because vibes is really sentiment and sentiment drives price and price drives valuation, but I probably am the opposite of what most people are in the sense that when it gets to feel like it does to at least to me right now, I'm more likely to not buy a lot. Yeah. And when there's like blood in the streets and it's dropped 10% in two weeks, that's when I'm more likely to start buying things. Cause I, that's the, that if I learned any lesson in my almost four years of stock investing, it is when everyone's excited, don't buy. And when everyone's freaked out, buy. So yeah, I think it does impact me, but in the opposite way, the hopefully good way. Yeah, I, 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 I can, I can appreciate that. I just, I'm keep, I keep waiting for the next shoe to drop, but not one of those old man yells at clouds. All of the nonsense we've heard over the past ten years about, I'm not even going to get into the details, but, but it definitely, like, the cost of capital environment has changed in a durable. There's that word, durable way, sustainable way, that is going to be very different over the next ten years than it was over the prior twelve years. Right. And I don't think people understand the repercussions of that enough. I want to offer one example of that. And that's Next Era Energy Partners. Tyler and I've done a bunch of videos about it. Before they pulled the rug out from underneath themselves on their growth plans, we recorded a video saying, hey, this is going to be a problem. We recorded that on a Wednesday. And on Friday, they did a presentation that said, hey, this is going to be a problem talking about interest rates. And then just this week, we saw like the first signs of that when they rolled over 10% of their debt. And the interest expense went up 70%, right? And they're going to roll over like two-thirds of their debt over the next two and a half years. There's a lot of companies out there that are going to face with that. And that's the, we haven't, like you said, we haven't seen the full imp, imp of, of, rising, of rising rates on businesses. And I think investors have just got to be really, really mindful of that reality. And here's what I worry about. My concern is that this becomes a slow and drawn out mar underperforming market. So. If if the market dropped 30% in a week, everyone would freak out, stop buying stocks, and it would be like every other crash we've seen. But if it just drops, if like the returns aren't good for 18 months, but there's no like sharp precipitous crash, 
I do worry that people are going to still have the mindset of this unprofitable, growthy SaaS company can't stop. It's it's unstoppable, and I'm going to put a whole bunch of money into it. That's my worry for investors: is that in the absence of like a a sharp unnoticed, sharp super noticeable crash, the pain's going to be a lot more sneaky. Do you know what I mean? Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, I do. And like the, I think a perfect example of that is the 1970s. S and P 500 gained 16 percent in the decade, and interest rates were substantially higher yeah. for a, a big portion of that. So, I just wonder when and if people will notice, or or do they just look back on a decade and go, "Oh man." <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? I mean, it happened in the 2000s in the aughts. Yeah, we went through that too. So, yeah, just keep buying though. I mean, just keep buying. It's not where it's start. It's not where the market was when you started, and where it was when you ended. It's where it went along the way, and taking advantage of those opportunities. And I think there will be plenty of those opportunities. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I would say one caveat: unless you're at the very end of your investing journey, looking to retire, looking to use that money, that might be a different calculation. But for people who still have a decent amount of time. Yeah, you just got to kind of keep buying good businesses and let time do its thing. Yep, that's it. Use the right tools for the job. It's one thing if you're still earning income and contributing regularly. It's another thing if you're in retirement. Use the right tools. You can do that. I believe in you. Oh, I don't say that yet, though, do I? I said it too soon. Too soon. Speaking we, uh... of tool tools, why don't you uh, wrap up the show, Jason? <laughs> well done. Well done, Jeff. Yeah, this is this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for getting the questions into us. Please continue to send questions to us. You don't have to wait for a call out for them. You can DM us questions. You can email us questions. You can tweet them to us. You can comment on any of our posts on social media. Anytime you have a question, we keep them. So get those to us. And we will give our answers to these hard questions about investing and finance. But as always, it's up to you to find your answers. Maybe our answers will help inform your answers, but it is up to you to figure out those answers on your own. You can do it. I believe in you. All right, Jeff. We'll see you next time, pal. See you next time.